David Talbot with GV Wire here with Eric Bischoff, and I'm going to say it, the second most important wrestling executive in history, and he will be at Fresno, Fresno Grizzlies game on Sunday. Eric, thanks for uh, making the time today. Hey, I'm happy to, happy to do it. And I hope your arm is warmed up. I hear you're going to be throwing out the first pitch. Almost deadly. <laughs> Well, yeah, I may have another career. Well, it's a, a 105 first pitch, so fans uh, want to get there a little early. Even though they're calling it Pro Wrestling Night, it's a day game. So, Eric, question I want to ask you the most is, why did you think you could topple the WWF and Vince McMahon when nobody else could? What gave you the guts to do so? Uh, you know, I don't know if there's any one thing. I, I think I've always been a very competitive person. And to me, it was more, why not? Why, why couldn't I do it? Or why shouldn't I be able to do it than it was anything else? And it's just, again, a lot of it is just my competitive nature. But part of it also was looking at the WWE's product at the time, talking about the early, mid-90s, and recognizing that they the nine-year-old audience was underserved. And it occurred to me that by targeting the 18 to 49 male audience, um, I would be able to be competitive in a segment of the audience that, like I said, was underserved by WWE, and it obviously worked. Now, did you get any support or any resistance from the, the WCW corporate structure at the time? Zero. Zero. That was one of the beautiful things. And I think I, I, I was blessed with the opportunity to work in television, particularly working for Turner Broadcasting at a time when... Ted Turner was still at Turner Broadcasting, obviously, at the time. And Turner Broadcasting was a very entrepreneurial environment. And a lot of that had to do with Ted. Ted is, was a, a mega entrepreneur and a visionary. And a lot of Ted's philosophies and, and the things that Ted believed in were about taking chances and taking risks and doing things that hadn't been done before. And I had a lot of freedom as the president of WCW. I had virtually little to no contact with the corporate side of Turner Broadcasting for the longest time. Um, and I was allowed to do what I felt I needed to do to be competitive. So part of the, or the main aspect of wrestling, and any business for that matter, is knowing what the audience wants and delivering it to them. So how did you figure that out, to deliver to the audience what they want? and you reap the rewards. I think a lot of it was just driven by my instincts. You know, I had been in the business since 1987 when I started uh, with a small promoter in Minneapolis, and I had a pretty good sense of the wrestling audience at, as a result of that experience. And then having worked at WCW for a couple of years as a, a talent, not as an executive, but that also gave me an insight as to what the audience was feeling and looking for. And it was just a combination of things, really. And then is there a point where you realize that some things are working and you go with that more, or some things aren't working, and, and then you decide to stop that? I mean, how do you have that instinct to know when to uh, you know go full bore and then when to pull the plug? Well, that's one of the advantages uh, of, of doing live TV every week is you essentially have a couple million people in a focus group. And you, you try some things and you see what the audience reacts positively to and what creates, you know, a buzz. And 
then you watch out for the things that the audience reacts negatively to and you know kind of put those on a list of things you don't want to do anymore so it was really just the one of the advantages of having a live television show gives you a live focus group every single week a lot of people think of you as eric bischoff the wrestling personality but you're also eric bischoff the manager of a major aspect of a major corporation so how do you manage such a diverse group of personalities in wrestling on top of running a, a, a corporate entity? It, it was a little bit challenging at times, you know, in, in no small part because when I started in the industry, I started as a talent. I didn't start on the business side uh, for the most part. I, I, I was In AWA, when I started in 1987, I was involved in sales and syndication, and that was indeed the business side of the wrestling business. And that's what I learned first. But not long after uh, I started with, with AWA and working on the business side, uh, I ended up in front of the camera, ultimately hosting a show Monday through Friday on ESPN. And then I went to Turner. But by the time I got to Turner, I think most people recognized me more as a talent than somebody on the business side of things. When I got promoted in WCW and kind of moved up the ladder, so to speak, there was there were some challenges just getting probably getting the confidence and credibility amongst my peers was probably the biggest challenge. But that didn't last long. You know, in success, you can collapse that cycle pretty quickly. And fortunately, we got successful very quickly. And before we knew it, we were outperforming the WWE head-to-head competition on Monday nights and that kind of eliminated a lot of the, the doubters so to speak and then just such a diverse wrestling is obviously a unique business and you know their their course they they offer MBAs they they teach lots of courses on how to manage not just naturally a wrestling company but any company fortune 500 or your local home builder I mean how do you manage when you have a hundred people under your stead who have probably have a hundred different goals. How do you manage that all? Where did, how'd you learn that or how'd you develop that instinct? Uh, probably born with the instinct to a certain degree, but really it's trial and error. You know, it's just digging in and doing the work and and learning how to manage different personalities. Again, I, I knew a lot of the people that, you know, ended up working for me. Uh, they went from being my peers and people that I just knew to people who were actually reporting to me. And there was some, uh, there, there were some issues there, you know, personality kind of conflicts and chemistry conflicts. But for the most part, it was trial and error, and you just kind of learn it. You learn as you go. <laughs> Is there anything, you know, one incident that happened that uh, maybe didn't go so well that you helped teach you, or you know, a learning experience for the next time? Well, I think there was, you know, to this day, you know, when you're dealing with people and you're dealing with. A business like professional wrestling or entertainment in general, um, you're dealing with you know you're in a business that changes every day. You're in a business with you know variables and surprises and challenges that you know you, you can't learn about in school. You can't anticipate, and in some cases, you know you had never experienced before because it never happened before. And that's just a matter of, I guess using your head, apply some common sense in the first, you know, in the beginning and and work through it. You know, I can't think of any one incident that was kind of like a, a memorable moment from a business point of view or a management point of view that, you know, the, the 
the, the lights went off and the bells started ringing, but it was it's just a process. It's the only way I can describe it. So you're launching a live airing or a taped live show in Fresno on Sunday. Uh, why take your show on the road and, and why launch it in Fresno? Well, Jeff Jarrett, who I've known for a long, long time, is pretty active in minor league baseball and um, had some contacts at the Grizzlies. And Jeff called me and said, hey, would you guys you know, like to do a, a podcast at the plate? And number one, I just love the environment of minor league baseball. It's just a different vibe than professional baseball, major league baseball, I meant to say. It's just a different, you know, it's more of a family event. It's less pressure. It's more fun. It just has a different vibe. And I love taking the shows on the road. You know, we've we've taken our podcast on the road and done shows for live audiences around the country. In fact, around the world. I'm heading to uh, Scotland in the UK in September to do the same thing. And I think, you know, wrestling fans all over the world, so many of them uh, are longtime fans. And the, the nostalgia factor is a, is a big reason that, you know, this show, my show, does as well as it does on the road. But it's, it's just fun getting out in front of people and interacting and doing, you know, question and answer kind of formats and all that just makes the show a better show. And might we hear this show uh, eventually on one of your podcasts uh, distributed? You, you, you very well may. You very well may, if not the entire episode, possibly uh, segments of it for sure. So the podcasting world, especially wrestling, it's really exploded in the last few years. I know your show has just uh, been on the air or been on podcasting for five years now, and you're ranked number seven, at least according to uh, the charts. Uh, that's a pretty significant accomplishment. Can, can somebody, you know, a personality like you and the, the podcasters who distribute your show, can they make a full-time living doing this? Well, I do, and, and others do. Um it, you know, it's, it's, it gets tougher every day because there's more and more people doing it. You know, there's more, I, I'm going to use the word cluttered. I don't mean that derisively, but there's just more of it out there. And just about anybody that spent more than a month or so in the wrestling business comes out with a podcast. And it's a crowded marketplace, but we've been around a long time. Like we said, five years, just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated our five year anniversary. But I think because, you know, I spent close to 25 years on national television in prime time in a pretty significant way, ended up being, you know, a big part of the WWE for several years, uh, you know, in the, in the early two thousands. And I think that exposure and that relationship that I developed with the audience over that period of time certainly gave us a leg up and, and a big advantage. Um, but, you know, it's tough, like any business. There's, I, I can't think of a business out there that's legal. <laughs> that's not really difficult. It takes time. It takes commitment. Um, and it's the same thing as producing live television. You've got to kind of learn what the audience is reacting to and what they want to hear more of and what they want to hear less of and just kind of evolve and adapt along the way. How many hours do you have to prepare for? I mean, you put two shows out a week. How much prep time goes into those shows? Well, we do. Uh, we've got a, a gentleman by the name of Derek Sabato who does a, a lot of our research, and he he probably spends the most time doing research, and then he kind of submits a, an outline or a format to us based on the research he did. And then Conrad Thompson and I, or John Elba and I, depending on the show, will kind of go through that. Um, outline and we'll pick out the things that we feel will be the most entertaining or the most interesting for the audience. Uh, 
so my end of it, uh, yeah, this is going to sound horrible, but I don't like to prep too much because I think some of the magic, at least in my show, is the improvisational nature of it. I don't like to have too too much of a kind of written in stone approach to a show before I do it. You probably need some spontaneity, right? I love the spontaneity and uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of times I'll see something in, in the research and it's a question about something that happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 25 or 30 years ago. And I could spend a lot of time doing the research so I may be able to give more specific details to a, to a certain question. But my natural reaction sometimes is a little bit more entertaining for people than a canned, detailed research response. Right. I don't think people turn into my show. They're looking for details. They're looking for specifics. They want to know, you know, who did what to who and what caused what and why. But they also want to be entertained. And sometimes focusing on details and information comes at the cost of being spontaneous and entertaining. So I, I try to find that balance. There are times I wish I could be more specific and remember more details. But oftentimes, if I don't remember something, I'll just admit I don't remember. It was 25 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago or yesterday. I don't know. I couldn't tell you what I had for breakfast yesterday. <laughs> but I'm honest about it. I do the best I can with it. And then, you know, we get to the answer. My co-host, you know, Conrad Thompson for 83 weeks and John Alba. John is very, very good and detail-oriented. Between the two of us, we get to the details. But I try to be, like I said, as spontaneous and entertaining as possible right and one of the podcasts is strictly business so let's talk a little bit about strictly business how are the revenues for your shows strictly business is relatively new and is starting to pick up very well in, in fact as a new podcast a new launch it's probably gained more momentum than my original podcast 83 weeks and part of that is because i've been able to leverage the audience we have for 83 weeks let them know about strictly business cross promote it and Strictly Business is an entirely different show. Strictly Business focuses on the business of the wrestling business. We don't talk about, you know, who tried to take somebody else's girlfriend out on a date or who did what to who in a locker room. Or, you know, we stay away from the, the stories and the personalities and the drama. And we focus on what makes the business of the wrestling business tick. What makes it work? Because there's a lot of, you know, the professional res wrestling industry is a far more complex and sophisticated business than people who are not in the business can even imagine. And all you need to do is kind of look at what's going on in WWE right now. This is, you know, WWE is a major you know, global publicly held company that does business all over the world and, you know, was recently sold for $9 billion. Well, you don't get to be that big unless you're a very sophisticated business and in the entertainment business like i said it's very complicated it moves very quickly changes very quickly and you have to have a lot of people that know what they're doing to keep it going and i think focusing on the business of the business is something that a lot of wrestling fans are interested in because it's not something that they hear talked about much when you talk about all the wrestling podcasts that are out there many of them are hosted by former professional wrestling talent and while 
professional wrestling talent knows a lot about what goes on inside of the wrestling ring and what works and doesn't work and psychology and all the things that go into the art form of what happens into in the ring and what people see on TV. Very few, if any of them, have ever had to spend five minutes understanding the business of the business that takes place outside of the wrestling ring. And that's the perspective that Strictly Business gives them. Right, and business for you is going well. I mean, obviously, you you expanded. You're doing two shows a week, so your business must be doing pretty well. We're doing very well. I just recently I got back from New York last night. I did some shows just outside of New York in uh, in Connecticut. Ironically, ten miles from WWE's offices, but I did a show in Connecticut in uh, Thursday night, and then I'll be with you guys in Fresno, and then Monday I've got a commitment that I can't really talk about. So I'm going to be in another major city on Monday. So I'm really busier now than I thought I would be. I, I I don't know that I want to be a whole lot busier than I am at this stage of my life. I enjoy what I I love what I do. I don't I, I need to do what I do as part of who I am. But I also love. You know, I've worked real hard to to build a, a a life here in Cody, Wyoming, right outside of Yellowstone National Park that I enjoy very, very much and try to spend as much time at home as I can. So it's a balance, but I'm, we're doing very well. I, I'm, I'm blessed and, and very grateful. And finally, um, I know you talked about your recent health scare and uh, it was a very compelling uh, podcast to listen to. So I don't want to, I'm sure you might be telling that story on Sunday. So the questions I have for you is, when you go through a life-death uh, situation that you went through, is it true that you know you see your life flashing before your eyes, or you know what, what are you thinking, you know, when you're about to get to the operating table and you have to go on a life flight helicopter to another hospital? And what's going through your head in such a dramatic and traumatic moment? It was so bizarre, and it's hard to describe because I am perfectly healthy. I've never had health issues in my life, really. I've had injuries, but they were all self-inflicted. Um, I've never had any kind of issues medically or, or health-wise. And what happened to me a couple weeks ago was self-inflicted. I, as I talked about on the podcast, I decided to take a, 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 a supplement and didn't read the directions on the supplement and ended up having a very adverse effect to it. So I think for me, it was such a shock it's not like I had this long-term illness and I, you know, had been dealing with it and the risks and the consequences of it and all that for an extended period of time like some people unfortunately do. This was, uh, you know, I'm sitting there watching television one night at 9 o'clock and I'm in the emergency room almost dying at 2 in the morning. It just happened so fast that I didn't have time to think about much. You know, I didn't see my life pass before my eyes or anything like that. It got serious a couple times, and I had to pull my wife aside and say, okay, look, if this doesn't go the way we hope it's going to go, um, here's the information you're going to need to know. Here are the people you're going to need to contact, you know, business-wise, um, because I do have a lot of other things going on beyond the podcast and wanted to make sure my wife knew where all that information was and who to talk to if it didn't go well. But aside from having that conversation with my wife, um, you know, I have a lot of faith. I'm a fairly spiritual person, and I, I, I just wasn't worried about too much. I was aware. I knew that it could go bad, but I wasn't really too worried about it. And and I think that's more because of my faith than anything else. 
Well, that sounds very calming. Well, thanks for sharing that. And uh, once again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, look forward to seeing you on Fresno on uh, Sunday and hearing your podcast. And I'll probably uh, have a chance to say hi in person. I hope you do. I would look forward to that.